recorded live. Thank you. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christian Yorontachu. Today is Friday, December 7th, 2012. In two weeks, December 21st, I'm going to have a, um, an extra program here on TalkShoe. On December 21st at 11 p.m., I invite participation. I will be talking about the... Well, well, I'm going to be talking about a lot of bad ideas that get into Christian identity. The clowns that promote the hollow earth theory, the clowns that claim that Eden was, a, was another planet, and, and that Noah got dropped off here on UFOs. What was um, two of the, the DNA from two of every kind? That's a real whack job theory. There's some clowns on Facebook pushing that one. It, it's incredible. I know where it comes from. It comes from a, it, it comes from a redneck named Noah Fredericks. He, he, poor Noah. He sent me all his. He sent me all of his tapes once. He, he must have. Um, I, I don't know. He must have heard about my works from somewhere. He sent me all of his tapes, but I don't have them because I was in prison, and in prison, of course, rejected them. You, you just can't have tapes in prison, right? Well, well. Um, poor Noah died before I got out, so I never caught up with him. Fortunately, because Noah Fredericks promoted the idea that. Noah was a space alien. He got dropped off here from a UFO. That, that was the Ark and, and had the DNA from two of every kind. And there's a, a, a Christian identity, that there's a subset of Christian identity adherents that are basically um, rejects from a freak show that believe that crap. It, it's incredible to me. It's absolutely contrary to Scripture. So I'll be talking about some of those things on December 21st, but most importantly, I'll be talking about all of the clowns that like to set dates for the end of the world. And we will um, perhaps have some fun with, them, with some of those as we watch their, 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 um, their, their scare tactic, tactics and, and their national inquirer approach to Christian identity go down in flames. It's a damn shame they don't go down in flames. Oh, they will. I'm sorry. Yes, I've got a list of them. They're headed for the lake of fire. I have no doubt. All bastards are headed for the lake of fire. I did a program on Monday with um, John Friend, Truth Militia Radio. John is one of those people who um, woke up to the Jewish question after 9-11 it was an interesting program. It, it was supposed to be about a particular chapter, chapter 11 of Mein Kampf. We, we, we stayed on that theme even if people not familiar with Mein Kampf didn't recognize that. We stayed on a theme for most of the program. It's just difficult to talk about um, National Socialist Germany and, and Hitler's Christianity Without talking about Christian identity first, and, and, and it's hard to talk about Christian identity without trying to go back to the beginning first and, and, and explain the basis for the Christian identity for, for our beliefs, faith, doctrine. It, it's hard to do that because Hitler's racial awareness and his Christian profession are much closer to Christian identity than to any variety of churchianity. Like many of America's founding fathers, John Adams, John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, 
Thomas Jefferson, I know that'll wrinkle some feathers. I know that'll wrinkle the feathers of some clowns, or, or I should say some turkeys, that, that, um, that, that swear that Franklin and Jefferson weren't Christians. It can be easily established that they were from their own writings. Well, well um, like the Founding Fathers, Adolf Hitler was indeed a Christian and a damned good one. He just wasn't a church boy, and neither am I. That's why I say words like damned, right? He wasn't a church boy. He wasn't a churchgoer. John Adams, he was a Christian. He wasn't a churchgoer. Thomas Jefferson, he was a Christian. He wasn't a churchgoer. John Hancock, he was a Christian. He wasn't a churchgoer. Brilliant men are Christians and not churchgoers because they realize when they read the Bible that the churches are based full of it. Now, today the churches are teaching much more error than they were in the time of days of John Adams, John Adams wasn't a churchgoer because he had no use for the rituals, because he understood that they were silly. Even the Baptist rituals, even the, even the Protestant rituals, and they have their own rituals that they may have eschewed Catholicism, but they've replaced the Catholic rituals with rituals of their own. And, um, well, well, real men have no use for them because real men know that God can save us, and we can't possibly save ourselves. With all that said, tonight we will present the first part of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Last week in presenting the second half of Luke, chapter 21, we saw that the so-called diaspora, 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 however you want to pronounce it. The diaspora of the Jews, which in reality did not occur for the most part until after the Bar Kokhba rebellion against Rome, circa 136 AD, was really the diaspora of the enemies of God and Christ, not of the people of God and Christ, not by any means. We saw that in the language used not only by Christ himself in Luke chapter 21, but where the same language was used of all those people of Judah who were given over to the bad figs, described in Jeremiah chapters 24 and 29. The remnant of Judah and Jerusalem, which was not taken away earlier by the Assyrians, but had been taken later by the Babylonians. These people who were to be given over to the bad figs are, ostensibly, those people of Judah who later race-mixed with the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Edomites, who were the bad figs which had infiltrated the kingdom from the earliest times. We established that from Scripture here last week. The Jews are not the people of God. The Scripture proves that they are the enemies of God. For the same reason, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 distinguished between the true Israelites in Israel and those which were not of Israel, between the Israelites, who were the vessels of mercy, and the Edomites, who were the vessels of destruction. Luke chapter 21, from verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains. 
And those in the midst must leave the land. And those in the countryside must not enter into her. Discussing the first part of Luke chapter 21, several weeks ago, we saw that after a first siege by Cestius, the Roman general, as Josephus records, the city being populated with many wicked people, the better and most eminent citizens swam away from the city as from a ship when it was going to sink, the words of Flavius Josephus. And surely many of them had been heeding the prophetic warnings of Christ given here, warnings which only Christians would have. Because these are the days of vengeance. God chastises his people, but he doesn't take vengeance on his people. He takes vengeance on behalf of his people. Because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. All the things, such as Jeremiah's prophecy that Jerusalem would be smashed as a broken bottle, never to be made whole again. All the things, such as Jeremiah's prophecy concerning the dispersions of the bad figs and those who were given over to the bad things in Jeremiah chapters 24 and 29. For there shall be great violence upon the earth, and wrath for this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. Yahweh said in Jeremiah, And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, for they are hurt. This was fulfilled after 70 AD. To be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. When a Christian lays his eyes upon a Jew, he should see that Jew as a reproach and a taunt and a curse. That's all the Jew is. Look at him. It's easy to tell. There's no disparity between God's creation and God's word. Why did today's Christians worship the people of God's curse? That's what they're doing. I mean, we know the answers because the, the churchianity is bought out by the Jews and has them all deceived. People who were not even truly Judah because they were mixed with the blood of the accursed Cain, the accursed Canaan, and Esau, the fornicator and profane man whose offspring, for that reason, were also accursed. They've also mixed with many other races since their dispersion. They're all bastard children. Why are Christians honoring devils? That should be the logic that Christians are posed with. All they have to be shown is those several verses in Luke chapter 21. And if those people are dispersed for their punishment, if those people are dispersed because the wrath of God has come upon them, there's supposed to be a taunt and a reproach and a proverb and a curse in all the nations where he drove them. Well, that's how they should be treated by Christians. Finishing Luke chapter 21, where the narrative corresponds with Matthew chapter 24, 
There are some major differences in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke at this point. Matthew records the warnings of Christ concerning the time of the end, which would be as the days of Noah. Luke had already recorded a similar discourse by Christ in chapter 17 of his Gospel. Christ probably gave those warnings in a discourse in multiple varieties on many occasions over a three-and-a-half-year ministry. Matthew also records the words of Christ, which relate a parable concerning a faithful and wise servant, the parable of the ten virgins, and another parable contrasting productive and useless servants, and then the parable of the sheep and goat nations. That Luke did not record these things, and that Matthew did, only means that Luke's witnesses simply did not have these things in the records, which Luke used to compile his gospel, as he explains in his opening verses, right? While Matthew was one of the, one of the original twelve, a first-hand witness of these things, and in all likelihood he witnessed those things personally. Mark records only a part of the warnings of Christ concerning the time of the end which appear at the end of Matthew chapter 24, and Mark records none of the parables of Matthew chapter 25. Evidently, although Mark had recorded Peter's gospel, neither did he have the records of the parables of Matthew 25. With Matthew chapter 26... Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22, we see the accounts once again coincide. However, they also record these events about to be described from quite different perspectives. The witness of all three accounts, and John also, are necessary in order to acquire a more complete picture of the events. We see the same thing all the time in events witnessed by contemporary people where you can't really piece together a complete picture until you get at least several different counts, even of the simplest car accident. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 1. Then approach the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. Now, actually, that phrase, unleavened bread, comes from a Greek phrase, ton adzumon, which is of the unleavened things, where bread is inferred as attested to by all of the lexicons. However, the Hebrew word, seor, refers to the yeast itself, not merely to the bread. And the children of Israel were commanded to remove all of it, all of the yeast, all of the leaven from their homes for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and for the Passover. That command is in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. The leaven was also used in the making of both beer and wine, which is interesting. Don't make any beer or any wine during the Passover. You shouldn't have any leaven in your house. And the high priests and the scribes were seeking how they should destroy him, for they feared the people. But the adversary had approached Judas, who was called Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Many people want to imagine a spiritual Satan entering into the body of Judas at this point. We'll talk about that later from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Here, the text does not demand such an interpretation. Here, the word is translated, adversary, 
Since the Hebrew form of the word Satan means adversary when it is used as a noun. The Greek word translated as approached here is the form of the verb, Strong's number 1525, compound verb, ice, that's really a preposition meaning to or into, and erkomahi, ice erkomahi, a word used 190 times in the scripture, approximately. The word is literally to go in or into, to enter or to come in, erkomahi being a verb which can mean to come or to go, depending on the context. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon shows that the word was also used in the sense of to consult or to come before as of a court. Here I have written approached, the verb being in the aorist tense, that's a sort of past tense in Greek, almost, almost. It's a tense we don't have in English. I've written it that way purposely in order to show that a supernatural event, including some satanic spirit being, is not what is necessarily inferred by this passage. The adversary here may have been any one of those men in Judea who were opposed to Christ and had long been plotting against him. I chose to capitalize the word here since the substantive, and, and you need the Christogenian New Testament or to be online at Christoginia.org to see that, I'm sorry. Since the substantive seems to suggest a particular adversary, in other words, one of a certain class or sort. Examples where the same word, ice or gomahi, is used may be found in Luke's writing at Luke 128, where a messenger of Yahweh entered into, the King James Version has come into, come in unto, in that passage for Isarchomahi, where a messenger of Yahweh entered into Mary, meaning that he went into her house and spoke to her. He didn't go inside of her physical body. And again, of a man, of Ananias's, coming in, as the King James has it, to Paul in Acts 9.12. It's the same verb that we see here, Isarchomahi. Of the angel coming in to Cornelius at Acts chapter 10, verse 3, the same verb, and of Paul's having went in unto, as the King James has it, the Thessalonians at Acts chapter 17, verse 2. So the verb is, is not necessarily demanding that a spirit being entered into Judas at this point. It's just an, adver an, an adversary from that class of those forever in opposition to Christ who approached Judas about betraying Christ. And why wouldn't he go to his fellow devil? Luke 22, verse 4. And departing he, meaning Judas Iscariot, had spoken with the high priests and the officers how he may betray him, meaning Christ, to them. The word strategus, Strong's 4755 here, may be officers or generals. The Codex Ephraimi Siri has the high priest and the scribes and the officers of the temple. The Codex Beze has only the high priests wanting the word, the words for the officers. 
verse 5. And they were delighted, and they conspired to give him money. And having agreed, he then sought a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. One thing we have to imagine reading this chapter is that it's the Passover. It's only a couple of days before the Passover in Judea. The week before the Passover was the week when Christ made his triumphal march on the foal of an ass through the gates of Jerusalem. It's fully evident there that there were great masses of people gathered in Jerusalem for the feast in preparation for it. The population of Jerusalem was probably two or three times its normal size. And normally the city normally the city was around two million people at that time. Christ must have had a great throng of supporters, and they are the people that the high priest and the scribes feared. So they didn't want to kill him on the feast, as we shall see. The codices Sinaiticus and Ephraim Siri want the words and having agreed. The Gospel of Matthew records the account of this period much more fully. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, Christ is recorded as having explained that it was two days before the Passover and that he was then going to be crucified. It is not entirely clear which Passover Luke was referring to in the beginning of this chapter when he recorded his version. However, in Matthew, since Christ attends a feast in Bethania in the interim, he must be referring to the Passover which he celebrates with his disciples, and not the Passover of the Judeans, as John calls it, which is clearly celebrated on a different day. Then we read in Matthew from Matthew 24, verse 3. At that time, the high priest and the elders of the people gathered together in the court of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, a Sadducee and a Edomite. And they took, they took counsel that with guile they shall seize and kill Yahshua. But they said, not on a feast, in order that there would not be a tumult among the people. Even though the priest expressed the desire that Yahshua not be slain on the feast, that's what happened anyway. It is the prescience of Yahweh God that Christ would indeed be the Passover lamb, even though his prospective murderers did not desire it in that manner. Following this in Matthew, we see the record where Christ attends the dinner in the home of Simon the leper. Not recorded here in Luke, but corroborated by both Mark and John. Then a different perspective of the account of Judas's betrayal of Christ is given. Where we read from Matthew 26:14, Then one of the twelve, he who is called Judas Iscariot, going to the high priest, said, What do you want to give me, and I shall betray him to you? And they appointed for him 30 silver pieces. And from that time, he sought an opportunity that he could betray him. However, in Matthew's account, 
we do not see that the adversary approached Judas first. So it may appear on the surface that Judas took the initiative on his own. It does not make Judas any less culpable, however. The fuller account that we get from all of the witnesses show us, from all of the witnesses shows us, that he was first approached by the adversary. Only from the account of Matthew do we see the mention of the 30 pieces of silver. Luke just uses the term money. By which we may clearly connect the betrayal of Christ to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 11. I'm going to read that prophecy because it's important. I'll be brief. Zechariah chapter 11. Verses 10 through 13. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant. This is Yahweh speaking. That I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. This designates the end of the old covenant in the death of Christ. And it was broken in that day. Of course, Israel broke it first. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. This describes the good people of Judea who understood the prophecies concerning Christ. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price. Thirty pieces of silver. And Yahweh said unto me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. This was the price of his betrayal. While the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 is quite enigmatic, it was explained in full detail in the context of Scripture when Matthew Chapter 26 was presented here last year. It is evident that the 30 pieces of silver are cast to the potter in the temple. In Matthew chapter 27, we learn that Judas, in his consternation, actually did so in effect, where he cast the 30 pieces into the temple, and they were ultimately used to purchase a field from a potter. The 30 pieces were cast to the potter via the temple. For the barrier, for the field was bought for the burial of strangers. Zechariah chapter 11 connects the 30 pieces of silver and the breaking of the old covenant, which can only happen upon the death of Yahweh in Christ, which Paul explains in a different manner in Romans chapter 7. Yahweh didn't proactively break his covenant. He planned to break his covenant by his own death on the cross, ending the covenant, which is why Paul explains in Romans chapter 7 that the wife is freed from the law upon the death of the husband. Israel 
was liable to death under the law for having committed adultery and fornication against the husband. There is absolutely no way that Yahweh cannot uphold his law. Yet he promised Israel. Would always be a people. Not a church. A people. So the only way he could spare Israel the judgment of the law would be to come as a man. And to die so that the law would not have any force. The wife, the children of Israel, were freed from the law. It's a real simple concept. It's the theme of Scripture. It's a shame even many people in Christian identity don't get it. Luke 22, verse 7. And the day of the unleavened bread had come. The Codex Beze has Passover here. In which it was necessary to sacrifice the Passover. This is the day before the preparation day of the Judeans. The day that this is celebrated, paying attention to the calendar presented by the Gospels, is before, it's the day before the preparation day of the Judeans, upon which they prepared their Passover for the following evening. Obviously a different date where we see a divergence in the calendar at this time. The apostles don't explain anywhere in Scripture why they're celebrating the Passover on a different date. However, all four Gospels attest that this is the date of the unleavened bread and that this is the day upon which Christ himself celebrated the Passover. They didn't ever say that they were celebrating the Passover on a different day because it would be inconvenient for Christ to try to eat the Passover on a day that he was going to die himself. So we'll just have it a couple of days early, right? The apostles weren't even yet cognizant that he was going to die. Even though he told them explicitly, they still were not cognizant because they didn't believe it every time he told them. So they couldn't have possibly planned a Passover early because you just can't have it on a day Christ is going to die, right? They fully believed that the day that they were going to celebrate the Passover, which was two days before the Passover of the Judeans, they fully believed that that day was the Passover day. So it's very obvious. The only plausible answer is that there was a divergence in calendars between the officials in Jerusalem who had one calendar and Christ and his apostles who were quite obviously going by another calendar. And he sent off Peter and John saying, go and prepare for us the Passover and that we may eat in order that we may eat. But they said to him, where do you wish that we should prepare it? 
The Codex Vaticanus has, where do you wish that we should prepare for you to eat the Passover? And the Codex Beze has, where do you wish that we should prepare it for you? I just offer these alternate renderings so that we could see and get a sense of the many divergences amongst the various ancient manuscripts. Most of them really don't mean anything of significance. Most of them, most of the differences in the manuscripts are relatively meaningless in English. Verse 10. So he said to them, Behold, upon your going into the city, a man shall meet with you, carrying a jar of water. Follow him into the house which he goes into. And you say to the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where are the quarters, literally the lodge, where I shall eat the Passover with my students? And he shall show you a spacious, furnished upper room. There you shall prepare it. Then departing, they found just as he spoke to them, and they prepared the Passover. Here, once again, we see the prescience of Christ, which only God himself can have, and which only God can impart. As Yahweh pronounced in, Jeremiah, in Isaiah chapter 41, I'm sorry, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are God's. The prescience of God, which was in Christ, is written into the Gospels quite prosaically, as if the apostles had taken it for granted that he was able to have the foreknowledge of such things. It was never remarked upon. It was never marveled over. Yet the apostles recorded it as if it were natural to Yahshua, Christ the man. There is something else to notice in accounts such as this, which is also evident elsewhere in the Bible. Think about the man carrying the water. Did that man carrying the water, I mean, God knew ahead of time that this guy would be as well in this particular town on this particular date carrying a jar of water. How many things in the life of that man and the man before him and before him, his parents, all the way down the line, his entire race. How many things had to fall into place with exactitude for that man to be, as Christ said he would be, carrying water in a certain place, in a certain town, at a certain time, on a certain day? We struggle between the ideas of the free will of man and predestination and the sovereignty of God, or sovereignty of God. I'm sorry, I always mispronounce that word. Maybe it's just wrong in all our dictionaries. That's a joke, right? In truth, men do seem to have free will. And we must blame our mistakes on nobody but ourselves. That's a big piece of that. That's the, the clowns at Stone Kingdom. I think it's Stoned Kingdom Ministries. James Brueggemann, that turkey. 
blame God for all your sin. God's, it's God's fault. All our sin is God's fault. That's incredible. But that's actually being taught by some turkeys today. Identity men who claim to be identity Christians. They're not, really not even Christians. Blame God for all your sin. When did David say, God, stop making me sin? David never said that. Nobody in the Old Testament ever said that. All of the pious men of the Old Testament asked God to forgive them their sins. They took responsibility for their sins. They didn't blame God for their sins. You blame God for your sin, you're failing the test of Job. In truth, men do seem to have free will. And we must blame our mistakes on nobody but ourselves. Because even if Yahweh our God knows of those sins that we will make long in advance, nevertheless, when we make those sins, when we commit those sins, we are basically agreeing to make them. So we better take responsibility for them. Yahweh, being God, cannot help but have known from the beginning every path that each and every one of us would take in the course of our lives. He knew long ahead of time all of our actions and all of our mistakes. Just as we, as we have Esau for a model. That Yahweh hated Esau even before he was born, knowing, as Paul explains, that Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. In other words, Esau was a race mixer. That's why God hated him. So in our perception, we have free will, and we are responsible for our own sin. And when we do well, we seek a reward. However, in truth, in truth, all of these things which we experience have been determined by Yahweh our God from the very beginning. And all things work out well. For those of us who love him, despite, despite the trials we face in this life. Verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined, and the ambassadors with him. That word apostle, it, it, it should, I like to translate it ambassador, right? Because that's what it means. It's a little clumsy, but that's what the word means. I don't like to transliterate it. <clears throat> the word reclined, seen often in the Christian New Testament. The ancient Greeks did not sit on chairs at a table. Rather, they took their meals reclining upon small couches. Therefore, the verb, which literally means to recline, is rendered in that manner. Now, the codices Alexandrinus and Ephraim Siri here, and the Codex Washingtonensis and the majority text, all have 12 ambassadors. 
the word 12 is wanting in the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanist, the Beze, and in the 3rd century papyrus P75. Verse 15. And he said to them, With longing have I desired to eat this Passover with you, before that which I am to suffer. For I say to you that by no means shall I eat this until when it shall be fulfilled in the kingdom of Yahweh. The words with longing are from the dative case of the noun epithumia. The words I have desired are from a tense of the verb epithumeo, two different forms of the same word. The Codex Alexandrinus has, by no means shall I eat from all this, Here's a divergence in the manuscripts, which is in, important to note. The Codex Ephraim Siri has, by no means shall I eat this any longer. The Codex Beze has, not any longer shall I eat from this until when it is eaten anew. The Codex Washingtonensis and the majority text have, by no means shall I eat from all of this any longer close to the Ephraim series. The text where it has, for I say to you, by no means shall I eat this, follows the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and the third century papyrus, P75, the oldest of all of those manuscripts. Verse 17. And taking a cup, blessing it, he said, Take this and divide it for yourselves. For I say to you, by no means shall I drink from the produce of the vine from now until when the kingdom of Yahweh should come. Note that the kingdom of Yahweh comes to us. There is no rapture. We don't go to it. The kingdom comes to us. Psalm 115. I will take the psalm of sal- the, I'm sorry. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh. Now, in the presence of all His people, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of His saints. A messianic prophecy for certain. We saw that idea any longer exist in some of the manuscripts in verse 16. Here in verse 17, by no means shall I drink from the produce of the vine from now until when the kingdom of Yahweh should come. The codices Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Siri, and the majority text upon which the King James is based want the words from now. The Christogenian New Testament, the text follows the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Washingtonensis, and papyri, the papyri designated P75, and also the Codex Beze, which varies slightly. The words show that Christ had not necessarily abstained from the produce of the vine beforehand, 
as certain commentators often like to assert, unless you insist on going by one of the codices of the Alexandrian tradition. Because here, the two codices that are missing the words from now are both codices of what's termed the Alexandrian tradition, the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Ephraimi Siri. The majority text follows them most often when the manuscripts of the New Testament diverge. When you trace all of the differences in the manuscripts of the New Testament, you will see, you will see it is very easy to see that the majority text upon which the King James Version is based, almost all of the time, follows the codices of the Alexandrian tradition. There's a lot of people that I've seen in various forums try to assert that the King James Version of the Bible is not based on the Alexandrian tradition. Those assertions are ridiculous. I can sit all day with the Novum Testamentum Grece, the NA27, and show where the majority text time and time and time again agrees with the Alexandrian tradition. And sometimes with the Codex Beze. Now the Codex Beze is missing most of the next passage, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. In the Codex Beze, the last word in this passage is the word body in verse 19. And the rest of verse 19 and all of verse 20 is missing from the Codex Beze. I simply thought that I should note that. Just so that you get an idea of all of the challenges that a translator faces. All of the things that have to be noted and investigated. And taking bread, blessing, blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which on behalf of you is being given. This you do for my recollection. And in like manner, the cup while eating. Saying, this is the cup of the new covenant by my blood, which on your behalf is being spilled. John did not think it important enough to record this event of Yahshua's breaking the bread and distributing the wine at the table, even though he went into great detail about the things that Yahshua said. For instance, John chapter 13. That alone diminishes, to me, in my eyes, diminishes any credibility it has as a ritual compulsory for salvation, which is a ridiculous Roman church contrivance. The account in Mark is very much like the account given here by Matthew, where in chapter 26 it says, that upon their reading, Yahshua, taking and blessing the wheat bread, broke it and giving it to the students, said, you take it, eat, this is my body. 
and taking a cup and giving thanks, gave it to them, saying, All of you drink from it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which on account of many is being poured out for a remission of errors or sins. But I say to you, by no means shall I drink even now from this produce of the vine until that day when I shall drink it with you anew in the kingdom of my Father. Yet there is nothing in any of the Gospels that would make this a compulsory ritual and a commandment for Christians relating to salvation. Rather, Luke only repeated the words of Christ, which the other Gospel writers did not even record, which state, this you do for my recollection. How did Paul interpret these words? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul asked, from verse 16, the cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we, that's the key word here, we, the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. The word translated as communion in the King James Version is the common Greek word meaning fellowship, to share things in common, which is what the word means, koinonia. At 1 Corinthians 11.22, Paul asked, Now do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? This was in response to what he said in verse 20. That if you're gathering into one place, it is not to eat the supper of the prince. Christians did not gather publicly for communion. Rather, just as Christ and the apostles, communion was a private meal shared in one's own home or in a private place with one's own kith and kin, one's own associates. Paul said from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I have received from the prince that which I have also transmitted to you. That Prince Joshua, in the night in which he had been handed over, took wheat bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This you do in remembrance of me. In like manner also, the cup, along with the dinner, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This you do as often as you may drink, as often as you may drink, in remembrance of me. Indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince until he should come. So every meal that a Christian has is communion. We share with our brethren and we give thanks to God. And that is all that is asked of us. 
The false Roman church communion ritual only makes an excuse to have a professional priesthood. When you want a professional priesthood, you've got to have something for those priests to justify their priesthood with. You've got to have something for them to do. They prop up these rituals so that they may rule over our faith. None of that is scriptural. It is also evident from Paul that the real body and blood of Christ are not on a table. The real body and blood of Christ are those sitting around the table. As the food is the sustenance of the body, Christ is the bread of life and the sustenance of our souls. We thank him for our lives and for what we receive. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of he betraying me is upon the table with mine, unique to Luke. For the Son of Man shall go in accordance with that which is appointed, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to dispute among themselves who then it could be from among them who is going to do this thing. Psalm 41.9 Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It is only from the version of this account recorded in the Gospel of John that we see several other facets of this event. And I will read John chapter 13, verses 18 through 27. The words of Christ. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know the ones who I have chosen. But in order that the scripture may be fulfilled, he, eating my bread, has raised his heel against me. Christ called Judas a devil, as it is recorded in John chapter 6. Verse 19. Right now I say to you, before that which is to happen, so that you may believe it when it happens, that I am. And here, he again asserts his identification with Yahweh, who says that very same thing of himself quite often in the prophecies of Isaiah concerning Christ. I am. I am he. I am your redeemer. Besides me, there is no God. John thirteen twenty. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receiving the ones whom I should send receives me. And he receiving me receives he who has sent me. Saying these things, Yahshua was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one from among you shall betray me. The students look at each other, being puzzled concerning whom he speaks. There was reclining in the bosom of Yahshua one from among his students whom Yahshua loved. This is revealed as John in the final chapters of his gospel. John does not mention his own name. Therefore, Simon Peter motions to him to inquire about whom Yahshua says to him. Prince, who is it? 
Yahshua replied, It is for he whom I shall dip a morsel and give it to him. Now Matthew and Mark both have he dipping with me into the same bowl. Luke simply has the hand of he betraying me is upon the table with mine. All three versions may easily be true throughout the course of a longer conversation. This is a much longer conversation. John records chapters of this conversation. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All the way to the trial of Christ, which the other apostles don't record. Throughout the course of an entire meal, there was certainly more dialogue than any of the four Gospels actually leaves us a record of. To finish verse 26 of John 13. Then having dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, then the adversary entered into him. Now this is interesting. After the morsel, at the table as they were all sitting around, the adversary entered into him. I don't imagine a waiter whispering in Judas's ear. Here John seems to convey the idea of a spiritual Satan or a demonic being. And while that is a possibility, it also seems to be a way of John saying that at this time, the thought of this being the opportune moment to betray Christ, which Judas was looking for, had now arisen in his mind. That same word, I circle Mahi, that we see in Luke 22, 3, and that we discussed at length, is the verb being used here also. However, its appearance here in John has no bearing on the comments made describing its usage in that passage of Luke. Of course, there are always going to be people who insist that it's a demon, and that's fine, but it's not necessarily. You cannot insist that from the text alone. Therefore, Yahshua says to him, that which you shall do, do quickly. Having the breaking of the bread the serving of the wine, and the identification of the betrayer recorded in their Gospels in the exact reverse order as the Gospel of Luke. The account of the events of the Last Supper as recorded by both Matthew and Mark ends here. Of course, that is not to say that the other events did not happen, but only that neither Matthew nor Mark, recorded them. The events of this Passover meal, as they are recorded by John, although in some ways they are much more complete than the record provided by Luke, nevertheless corroborate what Luke has recorded here, and we shall see that momentarily with verse 24. Then also there was a rivalry among them, which of them is supposed to be the greater? Now, the apostles are certainly to be respected. However, they too were men, and they had all of the faults which are found in men. 
Here it is demonstrated that they displayed a worldly attitude, even after having been with Christ for most of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. They still had that worldly attitude. I'm not saying I would do any better, but we have to bear in mind that the apostles were mere men. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, and in the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of chapter 18, we see an event which reflected this rivalry which was recorded as having occurred in Capernaum, not here at the Last Supper, right? Mark portrays the event in Capernaum as if the apostles were contending with one another, where Matthew records them as having asked Christ who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven without any specific reference to themselves. But the record of that event in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50, corresponds more closely to the version as it was recorded by Mark. Again, another event in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. We see another and separate event which occurred, which reflects this same rivalry, instigated by the question asked of Christ by the sons of Zebedee, who would sit on his left hand and his right hand. Or, as Matthew records that same event in chapter 20 of his Gospel, the question was posed by the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, that event is not recorded in Luke. Without any reference to the apostles, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23, similar ideas which we are about to see in Luke's Gospel are expressed once again where Christ is upbraiding the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. This record here in Luke 22, verse 24, which I just read, where the apostle says, then also there was a rivalry among them, which of them was supposed to be the greater. This record records not any specific event, but only acknowledges that the apostles had indeed been contending with one another in such a manner. And we see it in Mark 9, and we see it in Mark 10. Or if we read the Gospel of Matthew, we see it in Matthew 18, and we see it in Matthew 20, the same events recorded in Mark 9 and 10, right? There is no conflict with Luke's record here in the other Gospels. Luke's only explaining the reason for this part of the discourse of Christ, which he records here, that there had been an ongoing rivalry among the apostles, which of them is supposed to be the greater. At this point in John's Gospel, the fact that Christ addressed this rivalry is verified. And John takes his recording of the events much further than Luke did by recording the washing of the feet of the apostles by Yahshua, which was obviously performed by him as a model, as a model example in response to that rivalry among the apostles. First, I will proceed with Luke, verse 25 of chapter 22. And he, Christ, said to them, the kings of the nations rule over them,
And those having authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not so with you. Rather, he who is greater among you must be as the inferior, and he who is leader as the servant. For who is greater, he dining or he serving? Is it not he who is reclining, meaning he who is dining, but I am in the midst of you as he serving? In other words, Christ, the greatest among them, was their servant. That Luke recorded these things here, and this is important to grasp, right? That Luke recorded these things here, even if it does not fully attest, it at least in turn corroborates and is corroborated by the next event which occurred here, but which is only recorded in the Gospel of John, which is the washing of the feet of the disciples by Christ. Here is John chapter 13, verses 4 through 17. So what I'm basically saying is that Luke and John are indirectly corroborating each other's accounts. He rises from dinner and lays aside his garments, and taking a cloth, girds himself. Then he puts water into the water basin and began to wash the feet of the students and to wipe them off with the cloth in which he was girt the cloth he put around his waist. Then he comes to Simon Peter, who says to him, Prince, will you wash my feet? And Yahshua replied and said to him, That which I do, you do not know right now, but you should understand after these things. Peter says to him, You may not wash my feet forever, meaning at all. Yahshua replied to him, If I do not wash you, you do not. Have a part with me. That's an ultimatum. Simon Peter says to him, Prince, do not wash my feet only, but also the hands and the head. Yahshua says to him, He who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet. And, and, and that is, of course, a, um, a feature of the society at the time because they only wore sandals outside in a very sandy climate, right? He who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, but not all. Now John makes a parenthetical statement. For he knew the man betraying him. For this reason he said that you are not all clean. Of course, Judas, being an Edomite and not one of the children of Israel, could not possibly be cleansed on the cross of Christ. He could not possibly be clean because he's a bastard. Bastards cannot possibly be clean. Therefore, when he washed their feet and took his garments and reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and prince, and you speak well, for I am. Therefore, if I, the prince and the teacher, have washed your feet, you are also obliged to wash the feet of one another. I have a few comments to make about that. Today, we don't need to wash each other's feet, right? I mean, we all basically have showers or bathtubs and socks and shoes. 
Today, we wash each other's feet by doing other more practical things for one another. Your brother can't make his rent. You make his rent for him, you wash his feet. Your brother needs help with a son or daughter or, or an aged parent, and you supply that help, you've washed his feet. Your brother's roof falls in and you go over his house and help him put his roof back up, you've washed his feet. If you want to go foot washing, literally today, you should become a Muslim. For I have given you an example. The foot washing is an example. When your brother's stove blows up and his house burns down, you move him into your house and you've washed his feet. For I have given to you an example in order that just as I have done for you, you also should do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor an ambassador greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you would do them. Verse 28 of Luke chapter 22. For you are those who have remained with me in my trials. The Codex Beze has this verse to read. For you have grown in my service as he's serving those who have remained with me in my trials. The Codex Beze is a 5th century codex in what Westcott and Hort identified as a Western Koine Greek dialect. It is a different dialect, there's no doubt. There's a lot of differences in the Codex Beze, which are actually word substitutions where they took a word that wasn't commonly used in their time and place in the Greco-Roman world and replaced it with a word that was, with an equivalent, what was a, um, a synonym that was. And, and there are many clear examples of that. But aside from that, the Codex Beze has a lot of embellishments that aren't found in any of the other codexes or, or, or papyri or any of the other manuscripts. For that reason, I find the Codex Beze quite untrustworthy. Among all of the ancient codices which are now known to us, the Codex Beze is the only one which was available to the men who translated the King James Version of the Bible. And I have to say that strangely, there were those men who advocate the exclusive use of the King James translation who also happened to be staunch defenders of the Codex Beze for that reason. However, and I have to note this, because it's quite hypocritical. Those same men are silent concerning all of the many places where the Codex Beze has strange passages or, or strange versions of passages, strange embellishments and interpolations of Scripture, which do not at all agree with the majority text upon which the King James Version is based. Sometimes the King James Version does follow the Codex Beze in spite of the readings of the 
Alexandrian manuscripts, but quite often and more often, the King James Version follows the Alexandrian tradition and hardly diverges from it. I just thought I'd make that little historical note about the Codex Beze. Luke 22, verse 29. And I delegate to you, just as my father has delegated to me a kingdom, that you may eat and you may drink at my table in my kingdom, and you shall sit upon thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now here it must be noted that the Codex Alexandrinus adds the word covenant after the pronoun translated as you in verse 29, where the verse may be read, and I delegate to you a covenant, just as my father has delegated to me a kingdom, which is a weird reading, right? The word covenant surely doesn't belong there. In verse 30, the Codex Beze has 12 thrones. It's explicit. It says 12 thrones. Whether it be 12 thrones or not, the number of thrones for the judges of a restored Israel are not limited to 12. They're not even limited to 24, a number which we see in the Revelation. 12 thrones are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. They're mentioned in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then responding, Peter said to him, Look, we have left everything and have followed you. What then is there for us? And Yahshua said to them, Truly I say to you that you are those who shall be following me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his honor, and you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Does that statement limit the number of thrones to twelve? I don't think so. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, the door being opened in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard is a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I shall show to you, meaning to John, the things which are necessary to happen. After these things, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne fixed in heaven, and he sitting upon the throne. And he sitting, alike in appearance, to a jasper stone, and a sardius, and a rainbow around the throne, alike in appearance to an emerald. And around the throne, 24 thrones. And upon the, 24, the thrones, 24 elders sitting, cloaked in white garments, and upon their heads, gold crowns. That's nice and symbolic, and the 24 elders are, are, are interpreted in several manners. But is are the number of thrones of the judges of, re, of a restored Israel really limited to, 12, to 24 by that? I would say not. But that's okay. It's silly to argue over such things. That's my point. But quite often men do. They argue over those little things. They argue, in, especially in Judeo-Christian churches, they argue over those little things while their daughters date, date squat monsters and Negroes, right? Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, the adversary demanded you, for which to winnow you as grain. But I made supplication concerning you that your faith would not fail, and when you have turned about, you must strengthen your brethren. It seems Christ was always picking on Peter, right? The precedent scripture with which to understand just what Peter was prevented just what Peter was prevented from, just what he was saved from here, is found in the story of Job in the Old Testament. 
And I'll read the first couple of, I'll read from verse 6 of Job, Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came also among them. Satan, the adversary, an adversary. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro in the earth, Satan's on earth, right? And from walking up and down in it. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear Yahweh for nothing, or does Job fear God for naught? Hast hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house? The protection of of God was upon Job, right? And about all he has on every side. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Yahweh gave Satan everything Job had. That's what Peter was saved from. Peter still denied God. Denied him three times. It's important to compare the story of Peter to the story of Job. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. In other words, the adversary was barred from harming Job's person. So Satan went forth from the presence of Yahweh. Job never claimed to be without sin as his friends tried to get him to assert. Job never claimed to be unworthy of the punishment which he suffered at the hands of the adversary. His friends tried to get him to claim that he was unworthy of it. Job never blamed his trials on God and never cursed God to his face. Satan is the false accuser, right? Peter was saved from a similar trial, as we see here in verse 31 and 32. But Peter nevertheless denied God. So Peter failed that test. We have to pray that we don't when we're tested in like manner. Then he said to him, Peter said to him, Prince, I am ready to go with you even into prison and to death. But he, meaning Christ, said, I say to you, Peter, today a cock shall not crow until you have three times denied knowing me. A minor detail which may be mentioned and we'll discuss this again next week, is that the discourse which follows, 
was said by both Matthew and Mark to have taken place while Christ and the apostles were on their way to the Mount of Olives. Luke does not relate that they actually leave the dining hall already for the Mount of Olives until he records what follows. We won't have time for that this week. It'll be where we pick up next week. On at least one occasion, Christ indicated to Peter what was the will of God. And in turn, Peter argued with Christ in the road, thereby being called a Satan by Christ, as attested to it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Arguing against the will of God, one becomes an adversary to God. However, the perpetual adversaries of God, those Satans with a capital S, are another matter entirely. Christ called Simon the son of Jonah. That's Peter's real name, right? Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah. Christ called him Petros, or stone, right from the beginning. Right from the beginning of meeting him, as it is attested in John chapter 1, verse 42. This may well have been because Peter, as he has come to be known, was the most stubborn of the apostles. Peter always wanted to do things his way. Peter needed to suffer many things three times before he understood them. This is evident here. Where he will be told, when we pick this up next week, that he was, a, he was to deny Yahshua three times, as he was just told here. We'll pick up next week where he actually does that, right? He was to deny Yahshua three times. And in the last chapter of John, where Christ admonishes Peter to feed his sheep, he had to admonish him three times. And again, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter had to see the vision of the sheep, he had to see it three times. We will leave off for here tonight and pick up with the second half of Luke chapter 22. Next week, December 14th, I thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.